0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And I'm really excited to have Stu Mashwitz on today. Stu Mashwitz and I used to be uh, old, but uh, we were actually office mates at ILM. And so um, I learned a lot from Stu. And, uh, and we've known each other now for 25 years. <laughs> so, um, so it's really, really exciting to have him on the show. And uh, so we'll have him for the second hour. So if you've got questions for Stu, Go ahead and throw those into Makana, and if you've got questions for the first hour, go ahead and throw those in right now, and uh, we'll get to them as soon as we can. Uh, Mitchell, what do we got?
1: Thanks, Alex. First in is John Nichols from Concord, California, asking for a twenty-something relative who wants to be relevant. Where do I start learning three D modeling, and where are the opportunities? Happy to take classes and/or internships. Now seems the time. Go ahead, Mitchell. I agree, John. I think now is the time, and. With prices being what they are, I would uh, I would go a Cinema 4D. That's just my opinion. You're going to eventually end up there anyhow, particularly if you're looking for opportunities in the uh, the world of advertising and broadcast. So I think it's a good place to start. Um, if money's tight, Blender certainly is a, a starting point. But uh, there are pricing uh, models for people that are in educational situations where they can get in pretty cheap with a, a Cinema 4D license. Go, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to mention that if you are a 20
2: something person and take a class, a lot of times when you take a class, even if it's an extension class with a university or something, they will give you the educational discount. You'll be eligible for the educational discount. And some of these 3D packages are quite pricey and they can give you up to you know, 60, 70 percent off. <clears throat> but they're now mostly subscriptions, so you will end up paying probably. And it depends on what you want to do with your 3D modeling. If you're doing it for um, 3D printing, I'd suggest uh, Tinkercad, it's free. It's a little bit different. It's not like for sculpting, but it's additive uh, Boolean type. So additive and subtractive, you you can make, uh, you have all these primitive objects and you add them and group them together and can create uh, 3D objects. And it's from uh, AutoCAD. So um, it is quite accurate on its rendering. So if you want to create things that are going to be printed out a precise size, uh, it does really well with that. Uh, When you enter the dimensions in, they usually print out at those dimensions and it's free.
0: So that's the good price. Yeah. Yeah. You can, as as Courtney said, you can. I think Cinema 4D is like $10 a year for students. So it's very, very inexpensive if you're taking a class, any kind of class uh, that qualifies for that educational discount. So it's it's a great one. There's kind of I guess we're we're really getting down to basically three classes of 3D. I mean, there are four classes. There's kind of a lot of free stuff, so that's the Blenders, the Tinkercads, the There's a bunch of stuff that's in there that all can do specific things. Um, and then uh, and then you have the, the the big three. I think right now are is or the, is the classes of Maya slash uh, uh, 3D Studio, um, and those are and Maya's used heavily in visual effects and in 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 Hollywood and. It's used that way because it builds a big core that people can build engineering on top of. And so um, it's not really something that a single person probably wants to use at home. It's, it's a pretty complicated app. Houdini is more complicated and Houdini is its own class of its own. <laughs> like, it is a, a very heady, uh, very complex system that if you have, if you're good at Houdini, you don't, you really have a lot of job security because not very many people are and it's super powerful for what it does. Um, so Houdini is kind of in its own little world. And then Cinema 4D is a, just a growing and huge part of the market, whether it's educational, especially broadcast. So they, Cinema 4D kind of owns broadcast graphics at this point. Um, and so, uh, so I think that that Cinema 4D is probably the best one to look at if you can get that discount. Otherwise, it's a little, little pricey it might cost 50 to $100 a month to, to um, have the subscription there is you can also do a, a buyout as well. Um, but I think that it, you know, it's the one that I've used for the last 20 years, um, you know, for, for the 3d that I do. Uh, and so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it. And, and I think that it's a it's the you know the best app. If someone says I want to get started, I the, I want to get started. I want it to look good quickly, <laughs> and I want to have a lot of job opportunities. Cinema 4D is a really good good one to look at. I think that you can. The hard part with 3D is. I'd like to say that you can learn lots of different 3D and it's all the same, but it's really not. You're learning all the keystrokes and doing all the things. It takes a long time to build that muscle memory. So you do want to kind of think about the trajectory. You may use other 3D apps, but you really are going to look at what do you want to get good at. And the biggest markets are in, um, you know, the, the three big ones to learn would be Maya, Houdini, or Cinema 4D. The free ones are great if you just want to do stuff for yourself and you want to save some money, but there's not a lot of jobs in that area. So, so that's, you know, so if you're looking at doing that, that's the thing you want to kind of um, consider. Also look at how this might incorporate into you know, VR and the virtual worlds and all the other things, you wanna kind of be thinking about those things. The most important thing is to start doing something. Um, so start thinking about projects that you wanna do, take some classes if you can. E.J. Hassenfros um, uh, is an old PixCore member and also uh, does a lot of great training in Cinema 4D. Um, and uh, and then Cinema, um, my, my son is learning Cinema 4D right now and he's really happy with just doing Cineversity. So he's, Cineversity is a whole training platform that sits inside of what Maxon does. And um, he's been really happy with that. He's kind of working his way through it, but try to find projects, work work on any project you can. Try to help other people with it. Just the the most important thing about three D is doing lots of it. Um, I probably wasn't what I would consider particularly good at three D until I was maybe a couple thousand hours into it. So so you you just want to kind of. I think, think about, really, you just got to put the time in to, to build stuff. It's not going to happen in, with a weekend class. But those classes can accelerate a lot, <laughs> you know, how fast you can learn things. Uh, most of the time when we did it in the 90s, we were you know, there was no training, you just kind of figured it out. So, uh, so I think that there's so much great training out there right now. Um, I think that you're in a good place. And it's a great place to get into right now, there's still going to be a lot of there's a lot of building demand for building being able to build 3d assets for whatever the metaverse or whatever they want to call it,
1: uh, that eventually arrives. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas asking, Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon, told employees who refused to return to the office, quote, at least three days a week, unquote, that it's probably not going to work out for you at Amazon, unquote. Is this harsh? Go, Bill.
3: Well, I think Andy was maybe laying down a marker saying, look, we're going to there's uh, parts of our business and there certainly are parts of his business. I mean, obviously, the warehouse isn't going to work unless people show up at the physical airho- warehouse. On the other side, an AWS, uh, I imagine a lot of that work can be done virtually very easily because it's a virtual service for all intents and purposes. So it's got to be uh, group by group. So whenever anybody says something huge like this, I think it's laying down a marker and saying, look, the pandemic's over. We have a lot of circumstances where flexibility does not meet the, the the company's goals. There are certainly some instances and some jobs where virtuality does meet the company's goals, but I think this is kind of a marker statement.
2: That's what it feels like to me. Go ahead, Courtney sounds a little bit harsh but of course businesses have the right to you know make demands of their employees you know they they tell you when to work and where to work that's why you're an employee considered an employee otherwise you might be considered a freelance uh, you know contract player you know a contractor subcontractor but um, yeah I think uh, they want to amortize the uh, buildings that they've built and the office structure that they've built and they are paying a certain amount of insurance on all that stuff and they want to make sure that It's going to for good use and not being only used like one quarter of the time. So uh, they have the right to make the the demands. And, you know, it's a big world out there. And if uh, you can't abide by your company's restrictions, look for another
0: company. Yeah, it, it's gonna be really fascinating to watch how this turns out. You know, I think that, I, I think it comes down to, I think it's less about uh, buildings and, and amortization and more about the managers just don't know how to do this. They were all really good. They got to where they were playing football. And then for three years, they had to play water polo. And they, they don't understand like how to, they don't understand how to swim like that anymore. And some of them were really good at it. And they were like, oh, this is great. And a lot of people were like, oh, I like water polo better than football. Um, and And, but the problem is, is now they want everyone to go back to football. And there's a lot of people out there that are like, hey, I really liked water polo. And there's a big argument over who's good at what. The managers, I think, are not particularly good at, at understanding how to do this. And we see companies that are totally virtual that work very effectively, I would argue, more effectively than most, um, in you know, return to office type um, companies. But... They hired people that were good at that. They have built a culture around being good at that. They hire people, you know, everything is built around that culture. These are cultures that are not built that way. And so I think that, I think it really comes down to, they just don't know how to create culture um, when everyone's not in the same room. That's what the, like all of the management is built, is used to. That's what they, that's how they got there. So I think that that's going to be, there's a tug, tug, push and pull. I think that the employees that come back, we'll probably come back, but anybody getting forced to come back is going to be looking for another job. Like that's the, you know, that's the, that's what's going to happen. And I think that a lot of big companies that are kind of forcing this issue, it may feel like they're successful as, a, as they, as employees come back because they, the employees can't solve that problem today, but can they solve it over the next six months or a year? And more importantly, what dry, what drag does that have on productivity? Um, and Amazon's known at kind of beating productivity out of their employees. And so they may be able to, they may be able to make that actually work. But, um, but, the, but how long will they stay and how quickly will they look for other jobs and other things like that? So I think that's going to be the, the, um, the real challenge for a lot of big companies that
1: are forcing people to do return to work. Next question. John Nichols from Concord, California. Alex, you mentioned you have six monitors for your setup. How are these routed? Do you have computers for each monitor? Are you using a KVM switch to control the computers? If so, which one? Oh, it's so complicated. Um, I actually have more than six monitors, but,
0: you know, roughly six monitors. I think it's one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, eight monitors right now. Um, they're, it's a mixture of how they're being used. So a lot of the monitors are going through a Blackbird. So this is a Blackbird eight by eight matrix. And that way I can kind of change what's on each monitor. I, I have to admit, I don't change it very often, but I can um, change those uh, relatively often. Um, and then I have a KVM switch. I have an eight port KVM switch that I actually just got because I ran out. I can't say that it's particularly a high-end KVM. It's called a T-Tech. Um, I used to use one that was a P-Way, but that was only four. Uh, now I have eight, um, and it's a T-Tech uh, KVM switch and, uh, and port or something like that. And it's, I just got it. It seems to work fine. It beeps when I change it. I know there's some setting I haven't figured out yet. So you, you hear it beep, you'll know that I'm changing monitors or changing controls. Um, the uh, So that that manages my keyboard. It does manage HDMI up to 4K30. I don't use it for that so i don't uh i don't use the kvm at all for monitoring i just use it for the changing my keyboard and what it's controlling i do i have found after pouring uh after killing a couple of kvms that i do have backups so i have you know I have this trackpad i don't use this regularly but i have it here and that's in case i pour something on my keyboard i can very quickly turn this on and control the show so so anyway so i have um some backups there uh, the monitors are all, almost all on arms, and so I use these little Hawaii huo hoo-oh, huo <laughs> like these kind of you know they're like eighty dollars an arm, um, and uh, they have usually two two arms per, and they're all attached to the desk, and so that way I can kind of move them around. Uh, I don't really like them. Mon- I have one monitor under my camera right here that is um, it's stable, uh, but the rest of the monitors are all. Um, uh the rest of the monitors I can all just kind of grab turn move around and that's been really effective i have to admit that this is a light version of what i've had in the past uh, people used to joke that my my system was called the array because it was at one point it was 16 monitors and i decided that 16 was too many so um so that was but that was a long long time ago go ahead chris
4: i was going to say did, would you say your uh your desk looks a little bit like tanks in the matrix Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. It does look like a lot of that. I should actually make it look
0: exactly like that. That would even be more fun. Um, nah, you'd have to add a bunch of CRTs. Yeah, it's, I won't do the CRT part, but I'll do the, like, the, the dark area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it So it used to look a lot more like that than it does now. Um, it, usually, I, I do standardize on 24-inch monitors. Well, not all of them. I have one that's smaller. But most of the time, they're 24-inch um, displays. And the big thing is just making sure that they have these amounts Um they have a regular IEC um, uh, C13 and that they have HDMI in. And then I can just kind of tie them in ha- as needed.
4: So. That's handy for you because you still live in a world where Amazon is available in the future. I don't think you'll be able to be so picky about the types of monitors you require to, <laughs> to build your desk.
0: I, I also have a lot of computers. I think that is the thing I have. Um, uh, I have two PCs you know, that's one of the ones is running the Alex listener and another one that I'm still figuring out what I'm going to do with. And then I have a a Mac studio and I have five Mac minis. So they're all kind of tied in because when I do presentations, um, the Mac, my presentations are kind of like a dance between. I have one that's the Zoom machine, which I connect to Zoom with. Another one is the application. So if I want to show you applications, there's one Mac mini that just manages that. Uh, There's one that's a presentation. So it just runs keynote. That's all it does. And there's one that does the, you know, the telestration that you see here. And then there's another one that's that's an extra, like, timer, monitor system. And um, the advantage of that is that I can, my presentations are a lot faster. You know, all that time that's spent, like, let me now go out of my presentation into something. Let me do this. Uh, now we're going to jump over to this. Uh, where was that? All of my stuff is all, you know, I just hit a button and I'm there, you know. And so it, it just pulls all the oxygen between all of the transitions out. It gives it a lot more oomph, in my opinion. So anyway, that's... uh But I like, I like Mac Minis. <laughs> I've had them for a long time doing this. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. How do you cool for all those monitors and computers in that room? Uh, you know, what's funny about the new Mac Minis is they, they make almost no heat. <laughs> like, there's just very little heat that that is generated by my computers. Uh, I'm really surprised. And I, it's all, you know, LED, you know, like they're not... There's nothing in here that generates a lot of heat, even if I leave things off. That said... I have a twelve twelve thousand PTU uh air conditioner right there. <laughs> like so I, I in between shows I turn it on. It's on full blast and it and it keeps it I like I like my room to be uh in the mid '60s, um, so so I keep it pretty cool. My my wife does not like to keep the house in the mid '60s, and she does, definitely doesn't like to pay for it. So I have I have a air conditioner for just my my room, <laughs> so so that, so that so that we keep it nice and like a
1: little refrigerator. Um, I'm much more effective at 65 degrees than 75. I found. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, uh, would there be any company that makes a ventilation grill that could be cut to fit a closet door? I know AC Infinity makes a lot of cooling products. I go, Courtney.
2: Yeah, there are a number of. Uh suppliers of these kind of grills that you cut and put into a, a louvered grills that you cut and put into a door. You can get them in bass wood, and they're kind of expensive in, in wood, but in louvered one you can get for around $60, $70. The more expensive ones are wood. But um, bear in mind that uh, if you're putting this into a closet, the reason they make these uh, grills is for our rooms that have an air inlet on them from an air conditioner, but they don't have a return in that room, so you have to put a grill into the door so that when the door is closed, the air has somewhere to go uh, and get back to the return that may be in the hallway or something. In a closet, <clears throat> it's a closed, usually a closed space, so the air has nowhere to go. So putting a grill in the door may not improve your ventilation very much because there's nothing to suck the air through the grill uh, with the door
0: is closed. Sorry, Bill.
3: Yeah, actually, I use, the, uh, he mentioned AC Infinity, and I use that in my system. That's This is the blower that I have on my voice booth. And so it's designed, you can get them in four and six inch round. There's flex duct, and there are plenty of vents available because that's a pretty large industry. A lot of uh, people who do all sorts of things use these for moving air. And in a voice booth situation, the thing I like about these, particularly with flex ducts, is you can move the unit, which is pretty quiet. Natively, but also uh, makes a little noise, so you can move it far away from a circumstance like where I'm using it in a voice booth to get the the noise level inside the booth way down. So they're they're pretty useful tools. Go, ahead, Mitchell.
1: Douglas, you did pick a uh, very popular brand because I happen to have that in my uh, Man Cave uh, Media Center downstairs. I've got a uh, cabinet with all my stereo gear in it. Then there's an adjacent cabinet that's underneath the stairs. And between the two, um, I have one of the AC Infinity cabinet coolers that has a uh, rheostat, uh, not a rheostat, it has a thermostat uh, built into it. And it keeps that room to a toasty 80 degrees. So, um, it's worth it because why? otherwise my equipment's going to overheat.
4: 80?
0: Why, why, how can you live
4: that way? All right, go ahead, Chris. There's an advantage in our business to being uh, having a, at least one friend who has a couple of power tools. Uh, there's a lot of things that we look at, you know, wiring cables and things and cameras and bears on oh my together that seem very simple to us that are uh, rocket science to other people. But you, you have the right friend and you say, hey, I, how am I going to get a cable from this room to that room? And I'm telling you, like within 10 minutes, there's a pass through. Uh, I knew a guy in L.A. once who had an edit suite in his living room and uh, all the equipment was in like an adjacent bedroom, and he was running the cables like down the hall and around the through a doorway. I was like, why don't you just pop, pop a hole through here? And he's like, oh, uh, 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 I don't know how to do that. I'm like, are you kidding? I mean, it's it's called a, a um, sheetrock knife. You can do it so simple. And it, it's cross-pollinate between different uh, skill sets. It's good to know people that, you know, have a couple tools in their garage.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, tools, yeah. They, they, they. You, you attract a lot of friends that way too if you have a big big garage full of full of stuff i know we, we i spent a lot of time hanging out with friends that had a, a garage full of cnc and other things there where we let's go over to let's go over to frank's house and
4: build alex things. alex had a door at oh that wouldn't shut right because of the carpet i just like, came over and fixed it <laughs> he's like let me handle this uh, i ahead. didn't even have to take the door off the off the thing <laughs> track saw laying on its side very cool there are also standards for this stuff i
3: mean most doors come in 32 and 36 inch widths those are kind of the building standards in north america so you will find gazillions of grills that are designed for those two standards now sometimes closet doors you mentioned you know if you got something weird bifold doors or trifold or something odd like that they can be different sizes but those standards are pretty fixed out
0: there so finding grills shouldn't be a big problem uh, and um, a quick reminder, of course, you can ask questions uh, throughout the first hour and into the second hour. Stu Mashwitz is going to be with, with us uh, in the second hour. I'm really excited to have Stu on. I think you're going to enjoy the second hour there. So do a little studying on Stu and throw those questions in early. Um, also, you can test our – this is the first day we're testing this. So I'm just letting you know. I don't know how, things, how it's all going to work. But if you use this QR code here that you can see – um, you can ask questions directly. It won't go directly into our Makana, but it goes into a place where we can filter them. And we're testing this. So um, so basically, you can also just go to askofficehours.com and throw your questions in there. Um, this is another side of Mukana that we use commercially, but we have never used it for this show before. So we're kind of experimenting with what this would look like. So, um, so anyway, so this uh, you can use and you can use it any time of the day. <laughs> so uh, you can just put questions in and then we'll see them and we'll promote them into the system if they, if they look like they're for our show. <laughs> so I don't know how, I, with it, this is doesn't require registration or anything else to Mukana. It'll just uh, let you ask a question. Right now it'll only let you ask one. So make it good. Uh, We're going to fix that. Um, That's how we have it set up for a lot of larger scale events. And so um, we'll work on that a little bit. So I'm going to leave that on for a minute. um, And then, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and turn it off.
1: But you can also still use the old to, to do that as well. All right, let's go to the next question. From David Barton in Memphis, Tennessee. David asks, "Can anyone suggest a DisplayPort to HDMI adapter that passes 4K 60? Lots of cheap options that only support 4K 30, and then of course there's the Xtron option, but it costs an Alex."
0: I think one thing that you uh, that you want to look at is adapters you may find that you you may find more adapters that go from hdmi to displayport or displayport to hdmi that support 4k 60 because i think that it's hard for them to certify the longer cables for that much bandwidth so so take a look at look at adapters um you may find cost effective ones test them often though i have a lot of hdmi and displayport converters that just don't work like it's just it's a it's a tricky it's a it's a format that for whatever reason is not as stable go ahead courtney uh yeah, I found a Dell that claims
2: that it does uh,
0: 4K 60
2: and it's only 23.99 and it's right. like Alex said, an adapter that just goes from DisplayPort to HDMI 2.0 uh, that you can get it and it says it's spec in
0: 4K 60 right there on the top. So try Dell. There you go. Yeah, and, and as I said, I think you'll find more luck with adapters than you will with cables. Uh, next question.
1: And it's our first question from the QR code. So this might be a uh, first-time thing Uh, from Robert Green in Los Angeles. Are we excited about IBC next month? Good, Bill.
3: Yes, and very excited. I mean, you know, it's in one of the great cities in the world, Amsterdam. And I always thought, just like I remember being out with John on the rocket shoot in the playa, and I had my bicycle out there. I'm really looking forward to somebody taking a small camera out a little bit, just a tiny bit for an opening segment and giving us a little view of Amsterdam. Because most people don't get there of the course of their life, and we're going to be there. That'll be fun. But IBC is a huge show. It rivals NAB, so there will be lots to look at. And I'm very
0: much looking forward to watching our coverage. I realized I have some great establishing shots from old IBCs that I can probably use. Not of the Rye itself, but of of Amsterdam. So I've got ones of boats going around and and, uh, the wide shots. I I had just bought, like literally right before I went, the 6K came out, the Blackmagic 6K came out. And so I bought it and took it to Amsterdam and shot all these like raw footage of things that were gonna just be useful. I realized I should go back and find those for the team because that would be kind of fun. The team will be covering yeah, the team will be covering IBC on the fifteenth and sixteenth of September. Um, it's going to be the two hours before office hours on the fifteenth in after hours. Uh, so you so that'll be uh, five to seven a.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time, and um, and and then it will take over. Uh, September 16th, um, the IBC team will take over um, office hours. Uh, so 7 to 9 on Saturday, they'll be covering live uh, from, from the floor. So we're really excited to have that. And we are excited to see what happens at IBC. I have a lot of people asking me, "Are you go-? usually when people ping me and say, are you going to IBC, it means they have things to talk about. So, um, so it'll be really interesting to see uh, what we see next month. Uh, let's go to the next question.
1: Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. OpenAI launches GPT-4 powered ChatGPT enterprise with improved privacy, performance, and data analysis features. Pricing is dependent on each company's usage. I go, ahead, John.
3: So, OpenAI was losing a lot of enterprise customers. They were banning ChatGPT. And ironically, I just wrote about this on LinkedIn. I did an article on LinkedIn. If you go to my LinkedIn page, what's going to happen is the larger companies are going to install llms locally on their internal land so there's a ton of third party llms out there that are not i have llama running on my personal machine right now and so that's what's going to happen is they're going to they're not going to let any of that data out because people were putting company secrets into open ai and so they patch they patched that quickly and so expect to see llms installed on the local lands in
1: large enterprise next question from CJ Koval in Pennsylvania, for those in the panel who use in-ear monitors, what do you do for cable management and where do you put them when you get up from your desk? The ones I bought don't like to coil neatly or hang on a hook. Good Corney. Well, when I get up
2: from my desk, I simply unplug. It. For cable management, I just throw it over my shoulder and it has this coily cord here and I have a connector to a mini plug extension. So I just unplug from the mini plug extension and get up and go where I'm going and that way I don't have to unclip it from my shirt or do anything else like that I just leave it in my ear and I can wander off and come back and plug back in uh so that's that's how I do the cable management and when I'm not on the air I just drape it over the top of my mixer so I know where it is go ahead
1: Mitchell yeah for some reason uh my Shure 215s only come in uh uh, 36 inch lengths, which is just too short to get over my shoulder and not mess up with my uh, arm, my armchair here. I've got one here. But the, the, what I've done to solve that problem is uh, it's not actually in this bag. It's the Angry Audio Headphone Disconnector. They have a magnetic uh, uh, adapter that actually, if you pull on it by mistake, it'll separate, not pull uh, connectors off. And you can also uh, disconnect. i do it right now, but I wouldn't be able to hear myself talking, which is hard Go, Bill.
3: I do the same exact thing Mitch does. There's my little connector. It's a teeny, 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 tiny wire. But let me put it in front of my face so that you can see it. Uh, but that is just a standard disconnect, and I can't hear anything now. And now it's back in. So that's
0: the. I have to run to the facilities. Yeah, the um, I I don't have anything pretty t- as as special as that. Uh, I have this ex- little extension. This is a um, this is a three foot extension. It, t- it turned out that's what I needed to get from my mix pre to my ear comfortably. Um, it is a metal braided uh, extension, um, and the key for that is it doesn't it slides around really easily. The re- it's not just for show. It's it it doesn't tangle. The the problem with um, I've learned that. Um, this one will just never, it never like gets caught up on things because it doesn't have any friction that you would normally have with plastic. Um, And so, um, so I have a couple of those and uh, they, again, they they just kind of work nicely. And then I literally, I have a, I have a headphone hook, you know, one it folds, it's actually, it's kind of hard. Maybe I can take it off. I have this little, um, let's see if I can pull it. Oh, there we go. Um, I have this little hook on my, on my thing. So it pops, I can close it and I can open it up like this, and it just hangs, and this is where you can hook a, ha- a headphone onto it. And when I take these off, I just kind of throw, it, throw them over it. just gives me somewhere to grab onto it. Um, it just gives me somewhere to throw them. Otherwise, you're right, that they just end up on the floor for me. <laughs> so it was just gave me somewhere to put, to put them. So that worked out well. Next question.
1: Another QR code question from Chris Fenwick in Half Moon Bay, California. Let's chat about HomeKit chris got new toys and
4: so yeah no talk it's a little bit about toys by toys by necessity you know uh i've been uh, the, the reason i'm in a new background here is i'm is i'm living with my mom to help take care of her and uh she's got a big house she wants to live in her house and uh it's hard to you know i'm a fair distance away from her and so i wanted to develop a little uh, panic switch system so i got some of these little switches and I started playing with HomeKit and I put these little modules here, like for example, here, let me show you here. So here's a couple of, um, so there's your home kit. Home kit works with shortcuts, okay? And then you can get these little modules that you plug into the wall to, to make a lamp go on and off or whatever it could be, like your coffee maker or whatever. This little switch here, this is a little it's a little tiny battery-operated switch. I have one mounted on her, actually on the outside of her cell phone case. And if she hits that, I have lights in my bedroom, my office, and the kitchen that go into like a strobe effect. They just they just keep flashing, and so I know that she needs me. Uh, the ba- the little battery operated things. I actually glued one to the wall, you know, double stick tape to the wall, like uh, next to her in her bathroom. So if she needed some help, uh, this is a this is a thing. This is actually really cool. I have it sitting right here. This looks like a wall switch, and when you turn it over, you can see how it would. You can actually screw it right over an existing switch, but you take this off and you go boom, and now you have a remote control three buttons all three buttons can be programmed separately let's get a little light on a little contrast um and they can be most of these things can be programmed for like a single click double click or a long click sometimes with certain users it's better to just put the same program on all three of those click states and then um back to the thing here uh this is a really great product. I tried to install it; it actually didn't work. It fits right in the hole in your door where you would normally put a deadbolt. And interestingly enough, the deadbolt portion, the part that goes into the door jam, that's actually where you put the battery for it. All controllable by HomeKit. So, let's say you're away and you and somebody shows up, and you it's still let them it's in. still keyed, right? It's still so it's They're, still it uses it still uses your same key.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can, so you don't have to, you know, if it didn't, if the battery goes dead, you're not it's stuck.
4: A, no, 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 not at all. It's a deep world of accessories. Now I will say that when it comes to learning how to do all this, I, I you're going to find that most of the tutorial type stuff that you find online, it's a bunch of, you know, gamer nerds who want to like walk in and touch their watch and have all the lights in their home studio. Go on. Oh, I'm sorry, Alex. Uh, You know, have all their lights, you know, do certain things or whatever, but there are practical uses for it as well. And uh, it's been frustrating enough for me to like kind of get up to speed. Uh, Well, I'm literally considering starting a whole YouTube channel just to teach. You know yeah, the sixty and older crowd
0: how to use this stuff. Well, the, the interesting thing for me is that it saves me a lot of money because I was resistant to turning all these lights off because I was like, oh, I got to go over and do this thing and I got to make all this stuff work. And now it's so easy for me to turn everything on and off. My i my my wife pinged me when I was in L A. and she's like, the lights are all on. I said, oh, just wait a second. <laughs> I just hit my, hit my phone and they all just turned off. You know, and so you know, it's 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 a kind now, of. Are
4: you using HomeKit for that?
0: Yeah, I'm using um, Eve. Eve has a, I have a yeah. um, just a power strip and I just, all I did, I mean, I could have done this with a switch somewhere, but it was just, it was really nice to, so the the lights, um, the 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 main lights here, all the lights are under one, are, except for the blue light in the background. They go into one outlet and then the blue light goes into another, the set of blue lights go into another outlet and that way I can turn the blue on and off if I wanted to. And then I have one more outlet that it goes to the speaker that, is my Alex listener for after hours. So I turn by, instead of having to turn the speaker on and off, I can just go into, I just hit, yeah. um, a button on my, on my phone and it, it turns after hours on, you know, yeah, for Eve, for me. Eve
4: is a big player. They're kind of the more high endy Alex Lindsay priced, um, uh, thing. They and it hasn't power
0: been 100%. Strip. Like they're, they're single outlet. I'm still struggling with. It's the, the one that works has been the larger strip. Yeah.
4: yeah. I think that's one of the things that you find. I know that, uh, getting to where I am now along that, along that path, somewhere along the way, Comcast, you know, blew up in my face. And I actually had to reprogram a lot of stuff. I don't know why that those two things were tied together, but um, it's, it, to me, a lot of it feels like you're skating on a lake and you're not sure how thick the ice is. You know, you keep adding stuff. It's like, it doesn't feel super like Bulletproof, robust. Like I'd put a big client on this, but the flexibility and the number of um, accessories. One other thing: there's a company called Akura, A K A R A, and if you uh, the little mini switch that I showed you, the one in the upper left hand corner, that's an Akura mini switch. um, Upper upper left. Um, To use some of these things, you have to buy your its hub. That then ties to the home kit. So it's this weird, it, it's it's a little funky trying to figure out who's talking to who. Um, but the Acura Hub that I bought, it's the H2 hub, also has an infrared repeater. And it has profiles for hundreds of like TVs, VCRs, DVDs, blah, blah, blah. blah well, all you know, kinds of things. I, I think that what's interesting. So here remotely is that- from anywhere, I can say, Mom, your TV's too loud. Let me turn that down for you. Well, I and I think that. What's interesting, what
0: we, we should think about doing maybe even a weekly office hours, home automation, you know, like another q and a, you know, because there's a lot of us trying to figure this stuff out, if you're interested. And we get Nigel on because Nigel knows more than we do.
4: Yeah, so way more, get, yeah.
0: So, so we get a couple other folks on that, that can help us with that. I think that that could be really uh, an interesting potential. Um,
4: it's you know, it's a little happen. bit like Legos for your house. Yeah. Like how, and, and a lot of, Acura also has like... Motion sensors, uh, mm-hmm. um, moisture sensors. You can put these things like underneath right. your sinks and stuff. Like, oh, there's a lot of i am looking there. at getting,
0: because of my... Oh, I'm, I'm looking at getting a bunch of temperature sensors just, r- just so I know what's going on around the house. You know, Like, what where what the audio... Like, for me, for instance, I put a sensor into my pool, and now I know exactly when... I know when the peaks are of... You know, I've just gotten used to I don't need the sensor anymore. But over time, I was able to say, oh... Pool's the warmest at five thirty, <laughs> you know, like, like it's you know, and and changes throughout the season. But I know when the pool is is the warmest to jump in if I want to. If I want to jump in cold, I know when to do that too. Um, yeah. Anyway, so let's let but let's talk about that.
4: I think home automation would be a fun like one real quick monthly add monthly. on. Thing. Sorry, uh, when you get into this, you're going to need some sort of a master hub in the house. Uh, you can use an i. Uh, what are these things? HomePod Mini. Mm-hmm. Or you can use the Apple TV. So, um, but you're going to have to have one of those things in the house. If you're doing HomeKit, well, yes, of course. And it's a big world. I like, as you know, I like to focus on one thing so I I don't get too distracted. And I've just decided to go full Apple, of course. Just you know, I like to watch Courtney Squirm, and um, that's what I've been. (laughs) That's (laughs) what I've been digging into. Very good.
1: Uh, Next question. Abraham Brahera uh, in Georgia. What's your opinion on the portable SanDisk drives? I've have one and haven't had an issue. It's a first gen. Should I get a different one? If so, what do you recommend for traveling? Go ahead, Courtney.
2: I recommend you avoid the SanDisk right now. There's been a lot of problems with the high terabyte count of SanDisk's uh, uh, portable NVMe products. Here's a an article on the on the verge says they lost somebody lost three terabytes of data on a Sandisk Extreme SSD uh, because they had some firmware issues with their wear leveling routines on those disks. I've bought uh, this Lexar and I've had uh, really good luck with this. This is only comes in five, twelve, or one terabyte. It's USB three. Uh, they're about a hundred bucks uh, for a terabyte, and it's. Two thousand uh, megabytes per second transfer rate out and nineteen hundred in to write on it, so it's extremely fast. Works with USB two uh, and uh, two point uh, two point or three point two. Here it is. Uh, it's uh, you know a pretty good deal, and it works pretty good. And, and the one I bought at Costco came with a thumb drive that had USB C and a USB A connector on it for uh, sixty four gigabytes, I think,
4: included. So. Look at the Lexars. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, we had a bit of a scare, and Courtney hit the nail on the head. It's the more high terabyte versions. Um, we had done a shoot in Texas, and they brought uh, three three cameras of 4K footage back. And I had even seen the the uh, the Lexar on sale. I was like, Hey, Paul, you should check grab one of these so it would have been my recommendation luckily he bought the lower terabyte count but um scary scary
0: yeah i have a two terabyte one and if it's plugged into my computer when i restarted it, it won't my computer will never make it to up, <laughs> so so yeah, there, they're, so, the is still there. I didn't lose the data, but I had to unplug it, and let the computer start up. There's something going on with the disks, and I have to say, uh, we've had pro- we had a whole series of hundreds of SSDs not work well um, from Sandisk in the past. This is probably my last pass at Sandisk um, as
1: far as how they're managing their their SSDs. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. OWC has a uh, utility for reformatting SSDs, and apparently it works better than most manufacturers. I'd be very interested to see how that works. I just wouldn't put anything important on a SanDisk right now. Um, Next question. From Michael Smith in Silverado, California, recommendation for QR code scanner, iOS, and Android. Uh, the phone, uh, the, the, the photo app, uh, it depends on what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to
0: put it, put it inside of a, there are plugins, for instance, for FileMaker and other things that work inside of the app to do that. But the photo app by itself, if you just point it on, on an iPhone, will just automatically give you the QR code. Um, in fact, if you have an image on your phone, if you do a screen capture of your phone and you just press on the QR code, I think in iOS 17, I don't know if it's earlier than that. I noticed that you can just grab the QR code as well, so it's it's pretty portable. Um, the all all the newer versions of of uh, Android, the last two, I think the last two updates, all support QR codes natively as well. Before that, it was the support was a little less. Go ahead, Bill.
3: Yeah, I've had exactly the same experience Alex did. I actually had two QR code readers on my phone from two different manufacturers. In the early, early days, I used those. But now it's so integrated into the phone that if you capture a QR code just in general and tap on it, again, as Alex said, it just takes you
1: to that link. Next question. Alan Scott from Frederick from New Brunswick, Canada. Is there going to be a way to tag questions for a second hour in the new system? So what he's talking about, of course, is if we use this QR code that we're just testing today,
0: um, can you actually tag things? Not yet. <laughs> and so we're not, and we're not sure how that's going to work yet. We're just testing this. We're going to see how it works. So we've got a whole bunch of questions that came in. By the way, if we don't get to your question today, the nice thing is we'll leave them there. We'll only bring them up if we need to, uh, because we don't have right now a way to send them back to you because there's no login. So, um, so the, uh, so it's, you know, we're kind of working through those things. So I would say if you're already using Makana thank you for testing it today if you're already using Makana, i would still use Makana for that if you want to if you are watching this and you want to try to ask questions and by the way this qr code will work all the time so if you're watching this video later and you have a question that pops up or you have that if you save that url you can just open that url and ask a question now you can only ask one right now we're going to fix that so that you can ask more <laughs> but, we're, but this so it's still like a little bit of a a little clue there but again we're we're uh just learning how to use it. So, so, just
4: you'll have to be patient with us. This is how we test things. So go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think the best thing to do is think of this as like Mukana Lite. Now, watch this is going to be really fun. Watch me get Alex spun up. So, hey, Alex, um, how did you make that QR code? Is, what, what website did you use? Don't ever use websites for QR codes. Here we go. Here we go. It is the devil.
0: The devil. Uh, you want to use, uh, I use a QR factory for it, and it sits on my Mac. Um,
1: next question. Next one in Matt L, Oakland, California. Going to stream a live acapella show. Two cameras, Zoom F8N Pro, talking. Uh, take, uh, taking in four mics to Blackmagic Design Mini Pro 8M. Two live view solo. Should I anticipate audio video sync issues? I
0: don't think so. I think that you, if you're embedding it into the, into the switcher, you should be very close. And if not, if you have an analog input, you do have delay available. So the best way to do that is to test it is to, you know, you hit record on the far end of it, whether it's QuickTime or, or whatever you want to record video from the ATEM into your computer. Um, and then just clap, you know, or use a clapper or do something that's going to, and then look for the impulse, um, in the audio and see if it matches up with the video. And then you'll know whether you're on or off. Anytime you build a new system, you should check for sync. Even if you think it should work, always check for sync, and that's the best way to do it. Next question,
1: Tommy Shans from St. Paul, Minnesota, with the new ATAM Mini Pro going into a Windows laptop. What are ways I can record the program locally? I'm looking for a redundant recording for live programs. Push to YouTube that might be dropped. Uh, you should Black Magic Express, Video Express, or the I don't know. What they, I think it's what it's called. It,
0: there's an app. In, that gets installed with desktop video that runs on the Mac and the PC and that records quite nicely to a hard drive. So you can definitely use that to record. Um, so you should be able to download that for your Windows and uh, it's probably the easiest, fastest way to do it and it's free. Go ahead, Courtney. Now, there's an easier and faster way is just to use an
2: external recorder like this is an HDMI recorder. So you put it in line with your HDMI out and as long as your audio is embedded in your HDMI, it will record... Um, the uh, uh, whatever you're sending down it. And these are, you can get them for under 100 bucks. It uses a USB thumb drive to record onto, and it records an H.264 1080p or 720p. Uh, and I, I use that for capturing a lot of backup stuff, uh, anything that goes in or out. And that way you're not tied to your computer. Uh, so your computer could die completely, and your ATEM would still be outputting
0: and recording on this device, uh, even if your computer locks up. And you could also put that in line so that you could record locally on, if you still want to record something higher res than
1: H.264, you could do that, but have this as kind of your hardware backup too. So that's a good idea. Uh, Next question. Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C. asks, what is the best way to share polycam files so others can be in the model? You can actually
0: share it from Polycam, so you can share it if they have Polycam and you have Polycam. So you just share them you can just share a Polycam file. It's in the share menu. So you have your little setup there, and it will send that that whole file over to them. I don't know if there's a way for you to collaborate on that. I, I haven't tried to collaborate Polycam files in the past. Now, if you someone just want someone to look at it, um, there are a ton of outputs in Polycam, so um, you can output it. I mean, usually if I'm going to send it to someone, I'll typically send it for as a USDZ file because with uh, scale and everything else, it'll just pop in front of them uh, as USDZ and they can walk around it if they want to or other things or move around it if it's small. Um, So, so I would, I would, uh, but you can just send straight
1: polycam files to other people just via text message. Uh, Next question. And it's another QR code question from Bill Davis in San Diego, California. What does the QR in QR code stand for? What does it stand for, Bill?
3: It's a test of my laziness that I actually didn't know at first. I had never looked it up. So I I got so uh, annoyed by the fact that it was pushed down and pushed down that I thought, oh, I'm going to look it up. And sure enough, there it was. I typed, what does QR code stand for? It stands for quick response code. Quick
1: response. And we're testing that right now. (laughs) There (laughs) you are. Uh, Next question. Todd Reynolds in North Adams with another QR code question. I ordered a Dell 2712 HD video monitor to pair with my existing 2712. Amazon sold me the correct model, but the vendor sent a 2722. The bezel's all wrong. Different design. Wine, wine, wine. What's the best way to find new models with the same physical design? Or Good. am I sunk? Good, Courtney
2: go on Dell's website and look for their refurbs uh, factory refurbished and find that 2712 and they a lot of times manufacturers uh, monitor manufacturers especially always want to come up with a new model at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, and you may not be able to buy the new the old model uh, after they come out with a new model, so look on the factory refurbs. you might be able to get one that matches exactly your twenty seven twelve from the manufacturer who who has a lot of B stock usually in stock because people
4: return them because they you know bought the wrong ones, et cetera, and they're all factory warranty good, Chris. you're not alone, Todd. That would drive me absolutely bonkers. i feel free <laughs> It might be time for all new monitors, all new monitors all around (laughs) the way to do it. Uh, Yeah. You might go to find on eBay as well um, that you may
0: find that are used. They might be a little scuffed up. Hopefully the screen's not, I have to admit my Dells don't match. So I have two over here. I did group them together so I didn't go crazy. So I have two on this side and then I have three over here that are all different. Uh, These are all the same and these are the same. But I wasn't able to get them all to be the same. Um, and so, yeah, so that that is a problem that we deal with. And the way you do it is buy them in batches. We, we bought... Um, I think when we bought the last set of Dells, we bought lots of them all at one time so that we all had, so they all matched. Um, but, but it is, it's been a problem uh, for a long time and a lot of times they're close to each other, but not exactly the same as well. Um, and that's just the nature of, it. it's kind of like when you buy a shirt and you think you, I should buy three of these, but you don't know if you're going to like it or not. So then you wear it by the time you realize that you do want another one, you go back to gap and it's gone. And th- and that's, it's just the same way except with monitors. <laughs> go ahead, Courtney. Another thing I want to warn you about, because
2: I used to buy a lot of monitors for TV shows and stuff, and uh, even though it's the same model number, a lot of times uh, as they go from production run to production run, they will change the chipset inside the monitors so that the uh, menu interface and the way for finding things in the menus of the monitors changes completely. Although the monitor has the same number, it has the same product ID, uh, but internally it's completely different. So you have to watch out for that too.
1: Next question. Tyler Roberts from Chambersburg, looking for a recommendation for an approximately 10-inch USB-C monitor that could be used with a teleprompter. Go ahead, Bill.
3: The problem that I'm finding here, I was looking it up really quickly to see if I could find one. Most of the reversible monitors that do teleprompting take HDMI in. Uh, Most of the flat panels that take USB-C directly, I wasn't able to find. I would take a look at the Lilliput line. That's one of the more advanced features lines that does do flipping for teleprompting services. But I'm not guaranteeing that the ones with uh, USB-C input, as opposed to the ones with HDMI inputs will do the functions you want. HDMI for sure. USB-C not so sure.
0: Go ahead, Courtney.
2: Yeah, I haven't found any of the really thin USB-C monitors, uh, external monitors that are like uh, 10-inch or 15-inch, the smaller ones, that have image flip in them. Usually, uh, I found this company, E-Y-O-Y-O, does have uh, most of their monitors. are for security monitors and so on and for... uh, Vehicles for backup monitors and vehicles. So they do have Image Reverse in them, uh, but they are not the thin, lightweight, powered off a USB type monitors. They require their own power supply, et cetera.
1: Next question CJ Koval in Pennsylvania. For those on the panel who use in ear monitors, what do you do for cable management and where do you put them when you get them? Yeah, <laughs> it's very close to it. Got, that's got for to repeat. sure. Yeah, so maybe maybe,
0: maybe we're, we're, again, we have this new system that we're kind of working out. Maybe we got a little glitch there. So um,
1: let's go ahead to the uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, do you think we'll see greater interoperability between instant messaging services with the EU digital markets uh, services acts coming into force? Uh, go ahead, Courtney.
2: We can only hope, but uh, for sure... One of the manufacturers, Apple, uh, will probably try and differentiate theirs somehow by painting things a different color uh, so that they can ensure that uh, they keep
1: everyone in line. You know. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What happens to all that stuff we return? And there's a link there. Go ahead, Bill.
3: So, I once upon a time had a client. The client was called Bargainland. I had them for a few years back when I lived in Phoenix. They were a warehouse, and what their business model was to bring in all the returns from a variety of services. So, if you send something back to American Express or whatever, couldn't put it out as new. So they would job it off in car lots to companies like this company. And they would have maybe 10,000 daily Amazon or um, what's the big uh, 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 auction site. Um, they would have maybe 10,000 auctions running every day, starting at one cent. And they were just blowing stuff out in the secondary market. It was a weird thing. I went to their uh, Fact, and uh, their warehouse one day. And I just, it just it just rows after rows of stuff that people had sent back. So it gets into that secondary sales market, and somebody tries to make some money off of it. For the companies, it's just like, get it off the floor. I can't sell it as new, and we're not built for selling used stuff. So there are companies like that that, that job it out.
0: Go, ahead, Courtney.
2: Yeah, you know, most manufacturers deal with this in one of two ways either they uh, take take stuff back in returns, and they run it through their QC department, uh, qualify it, then they put it into their what's called B-stock, which they cannot sell as new. They will sell B-stock to uh, corporations, to movie sets. We used to always buy B-stock all the time because it'd be factory, you know, it'd be just like new, only used, slightly used, uh, but they can't sell it for the full new price anymore. Uh, Or what Amazon does these days is they don't even bother to test them. If it comes back, they put it in a big box with a bunch of other stuff and they sell off this huge box full of a variety of different returns to jobbers that will buy those, you know, three or $4,000 per box, who will buy that stuff and take take it and test it themselves and put it on the market and put it on eBay on the resale market. So that's what's happening with a lot of used stuff these days is they they sell it uh, to these uh, jobbers that resell it on eBay.
0: Yeah, my understanding is I I was talking to someone actually that has done a little bit of that and they, I guess now when you go to Whole Foods, you know, that you can take your stuff back with Amazon and they'll scan, they'll look at your product and they'll scan it and make sure that it looks roughly like the product that you said you were returning and they throw it into that box. And then what that does is it automatically creates the list. Once they throw it into the box, they're never going to open it again. They're going to throw it in that box. They're going to seal the box and then they're going to send in the box is just a regular size and you, and they sell that box and they have an estimated Value of the box that that is way below market rate, even for resale. They sell it to exactly what Courtney said to, to jobbers, and it's been cheaper than what they were doing before, which is essentially Amazon was throwing everything away. Like they were just, you know, they couldn't do anything with it. Um, they couldn't figure out a way to repack it. And by doing this, they've been able to at least get reuse out of it. Um, and uh, it's just considered a loss leader for them um, as far as they go. They get a little bit of money back. Um, it does, I, I'm not sure how it impacts the actual, I mean, it, obviously Amazon takes the money back from the, or I don't even know how they credit the company that, you know, that that return went to, but they get some money back for that. It's a, it's a, it's probably cheaper though than those companies paying. I mean, I think that the math is, it's cheaper than the companies actually having labor to handle the returns, but it's a, it's kind of a crazy, it's one of those like uh, crazy math problems. Um, go ahead, Chris.
4: Yeah. One of the things they could do if they were willing <clears throat> is they could ship that stuff to Louis Vuitton stores let the looters steal it all, okay. and then right. and then Louis Vuitton could write it off. I mean, she's saying I, it could work. I once had a car that was so bad, I just
0: left it out because there, there was a law in Denver that said they'll just take it away from you if, you if you leave it out too long without registration. I just left it out in the front, and they just took it away. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Uh, next question.
1: Next question, Douglas Carmichael asks, how do you download the latest Isadora Beta?
0: I think you have to be inside the forum. I think that the link to that is inside. So you have to go ahead and go into the registration area there. And uh, it should be linked there along with the uh, release
1: notes, I believe. Uh, Next question. Brian Taylor, Washington, D.C. What are the possible federal I.T. restrictions to be aware of when requesting to implement TriCaster's new Zoom Teams integration? We have a limit to the virtual accounts that can be assigned to our names as a Fed. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know,
0: that is, I mean, you do have to get into the situation where it gets complex and you're really going to have to figure out what the rules of engagement are there because is Zooms registered for your agency and same with Teams. Um, and then, yeah, I think that the problem you're having there is is when you have that integration is that Is that considered a user and how does that deal with security and how, you know, data security and so on and so forth going out to that TriCaster? And I think I don't have an answer for you other than it is a prickly problem. If you're going to be exporting for any kind of secure location, if you're exporting that out. And the other thing to look at is with, I don't know how teams work, but I know that other Mm -hmm. video platforms uh, will, you know, you can put a reflector on prem. And so you can actually have everything staying inside, it doesn't have to go out to the cloud. Um, so, so there's a couple of different ways to manage that as far as security, but it is a security hole to have something that can record and everything else that's there. So um, you're going to have to talk to your IT. I don't, there could be a lot of restrictions in, in having a host specifically designed to record and in this case,
1: pull feeds um, to make that actually work. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael, Disney video effects workers have filed for a union election with the U.S. National Labor Re- uh, Relations Board. Do you think we'll see more VFX unionization since Marvel and Disney started the trend? Go ahead, Courtney. Yes, uh, there's a big move
2: toward unionization right now. and. Uh, uh, visual effects has not been under IE contract for many, many years now. and It's highly competitive. And this would be a good question to bring up to our next guest coming up in the next hour about unionization specifically because he works in that area.
0: Go ahead, Bill.
3: Yeah, I think it's been a discussion for a long time. I remember I lived in Phoenix when um, I think it was Fox Animation at the time brought Anastasia out to Phoenix as an animation thing. And right after they built a a pretty big facility and imported a ton of high-end animators, um, there was all sorts of difficulty with getting that that movie out the door. And um, so it went back offshore. So they brought in a lot of animators who were highly skilled from offshore. I think a lot of them from Ireland are someplace similar. And then they all left after the three or four years that that was under production. So it is a tough thing with so much offshore competition for this
0: kind of work. And a quick reminder, of course, we've got a lot coming up. Stu Mashwitz will be here in just a couple minutes. Um, we'll be talking to Stu there. And uh, on Wednesday, we have object-based editing. This is audio editing with Robert Scoville. I'm uh, really excited to have Robert on. Um, also on Thursday, plates, plate uh, David C. Smith, We'll be on talking about how they shoot all those plates that we put behind us uh, in some of our car shots. Um, and then on Friday, NDI Workflows. And we have an incredible team uh, that's coming together to talk about this. I, th- I think that, you know, it's uh, I, just a list. I mean, Roberto uh, Musso, Lenny Nelson, Elias uh, per- uh, Perunin. Uh, Jeff Keithley um, and uh, Fritton McKieran uh, will all be on, and these are some of the world experts in NDI. So, so it should be a really, really interesting Friday um, to uh, to be here for that. Of course, on the weekends we have um, just Q and A uh, for as long as you ask questions. <laughs> so that's how the weekend actually uh, gets built out. And a quick reminder again that we have uh, for we're going to be covering IBC on the 15th and the 16th, and so um, that is a. Um, uh, IBC is basically the coverage that we have there. Uh, it's after hours before office hours, and that'll be on the 15th. Um, and then we'll have, and will be taking over office hours on the 16th, on that Saturday. Um, and so that, that coverage will be um, a couple hours each day. Um, so if you've got questions or you're interested in the, basically the European version of, of NAB, um, definitely check it out. It's, it's, a, it's a really hard one to cover because the rise. So complicated um, anyway so to, to, to move around so um, so we're really looking forward to seeing what that coverage looks like and also uh, later today um, we have the uh, are we have a test area people don't know how to get on the panel they don't know exactly how to get set up so we have a way to um, for you to practice um, as a reader or as a host As a panelist, um, and that's at um, noon Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, basically, we kind of go through all of those things and let you kind of figure out how this all comes together and how it all works and how you can be part of that. So I highly recommend uh, checking that out. You'll see more information on the email that goes out as well as uh, in our um, in discord. So definitely look for those. Uh, We'd love to have you join us on the panel. Uh, And this is a great way to get started. And now we're going to go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome to the second hour, and it's my honor to have Stu Mashowitz on the show, my old office mate at uh, Industrial Light & Magic. Uh, Stu is a filmmaker, photographer, writer, visual effects artist, and filmmaking software designer. Uh, after graduating Kyle Arts, uh, Stu spent four years at Industrial Light & Magic uh, working on little films like Twister and Star Wars and Mission Impossible uh, before co-founding the orphanage in 1999. Uh, Stu has directed uh, music videos, award-winning commercials, and second unit for film. And television, as well as creating one of the coolest movies made in the last decade, which is Tank, <laughs> so, which is just amazing. Hopefully, Stu will show us a little bit of that and we'll talk about it. Um, he wrote uh, DV, the DV Rebels Guide and created the screen a- uh, writing app Slugline and designed Magic Bullet, the Magic Bullet color grading system for Red Giant. Um, Stu is now the chief creative officer at Maxon and uh, he maintains a filmmaking and photography blog at prolost.com good to have you here, Stu. So
5: great to be here, man. It's awesome to see you.
0: It's so awesome. Uh, (laughs) I've been waiting. I felt like we had to wait until we were grown up before we could have uh, Stu on. Like, I was like, I got to make sure all the pieces are there. So anyway, so really, uh, (laughs) really, really excited to have you here. It's fun to be here. How did you get, a lot of these questions I realized, Stu and I were office mates for like a year and a half, and I realized there's a lot of things that I don't know. Like, how did, when did you know that you wanted to get into filmmaking?
5: Yeah, I mean, it really was that, you know i mean my memory of it is a bit hazy of course but the experience of seeing star wars as a kid i think i was about five years old um you know i just kind of pointed at the screen and said whatever that is i want to do that you know too young to really understand but um had kind of the um you know, the kind of like J.J. Abrams, Spielberg kind of childhood thing of like dad had a Super 8 camera, had a had a DSLR, not a D, sorry, just SLR. And um, and so there was a sense of like understanding how images were made. And. Uh, yeah, just kind of that early fascination with the movies themselves, but then realizing little by little that when they would, those specials would come on TV and they'd show you the behind the scenes with the models on the sticks, that like that was the real juice for me. So I'm in the very strange position of having decided at age five what the job that I wanted and then having gone and done that exact job. I know.
0: I, I, I think a lot of us uh, that were at, at the time we were at ILM, I think a lot of us had that experience where what drove us into computer, like what drove me into computer graphics was Star Wars in the same way. Um, I think I was about the same age and um, I started programming graphics so that I could work on space films when I was 10. Like, I don't know, like I will turn these pixels on and I don't know what (laughs) you know, like, you know, and uh, one by one. And um, it was funny when we, when we had, I don't know if it was the same way for you, but I know when we when. They did the re-releases. All of us got to go to Smith Ranch Road or Roland Plaza or whatever, and we got to watch the Star Wars. And I think it was probably for most of us the first time we had seen Star Wars back in the theater since we were five, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're yeah. six years old. And and as the as the as the text went up, as it, as it was going up, you could hear the whole the whole audience like this, like emotional release that happened of, of like this is why we're all here, you know, like this yeah. was. Um, now how did you end up at CalArts?
5: Well, that was yeah, so like like you, I had that kind of um, you know, the convergent track of being interested in computers and interested in filmmaking, right? So, um and I I kind of chose the public high school I went to in the Twin Cities because they had a magnet program for video. So they wound up with a video toaster and an Amiga um running things like deluxe paint and, uh, you know, what was it sculpt 3d and things like that. So I, Mm -hmm. I had been making computer graphics, you know, since it was a very sort of, uh, sticks and chewing gum kind of operation. And by the time I graduated high school, I had a little bit of a demo reel put together and, that was also the era of the Spike and Mike Film Festival, you know, midnight screenings of like the Computer Animation Film Festival, and I kept hearing CalArts over and over again as a place where some of these animators were coming from. And uh, I remember when I took my SATs in the gymnasium in my high school, that you know you could f- check a box next to the name of a school, and they would send your scores to it, and. I saw California Institute of the Arts and California College of Arts and Crafts, and I thought, well, one of these is probably CalArts, so I better send them both my <laughs> my stuff just in case. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I think back then it was like the, the big feeders for ILM or
0: CalArts and, and Sheridan. I think those were the big that seemed like a lot of a lot of folks that we worked with. Now you you got out of you, you graduated CalArts, and and was it hard to get into ILM? Like, what was the
5: gap between when you graduated and when you ended up at at ILM? It was such a dynamic time, right? Because I I got there in 91 and, um, you know, the film industry was still pretty analog at that time. And I even took an optical printer course at CalArts. And it luckily for me it was Mondays at nine a.m. and so I dropped out <laughs> and played around with the computers instead. Um, but the uh, but the the sense of like the industry changing, you know, Jurassic Park happened. I went to see it with a bunch of my friends, and then the next year, the Cal Arts had a computer lab that was ILM's old donated computers. So they were all the same computers they had used to make Jurassic Park, and they were sitting in a room and you could go in there and you could learn how to use a- alias, wavefront, whatever, you know. Um and uh, but I was actually more excited by the Amiga lab. The Amigas were really my jam. Like I could really get stuff done there. Um, but in the in the time between in the time between my third year and my fourth year, it went from knowing no one and having no connections and at the end of my third year it was eric armstrong and west takahashi who are like two luminaries in the vfx animation world they came down for the sort of job fair that was part of the cal arts experience and and they just looked at my reel and they said you're going to be fine just give it a year and and sure enough i did that last year of cal arts and but and the two people who came down um were my former classmate Cal uh, Balda and my former uh, teacher, Dale McBeath, were the two people who came down from ILM. They were working on uh, Casper or Jumanji or something. And we just sat in a room and they were like, so, Stu, our good friend Stu, what do you want to do at ILM? We think you should be a technical director. You're good at lighting and animation and you should come do this. And So it weirdly was like just, you know, very, very fortunate timing. And as you know, that time at ILM was so dynamic, right? They were going from a computer graphics department of six people to 300 people. And uh, they were so desperate. They would even hire me. You know, the funny thing is, is that I remember talking to John Noel about
0: that. And and when they did the first digital composite, they thought, well, in 10 years, no one's going to (laughs) do, you know, analog compositing. And it was like six months. like Yeah. the whole thing just changed because yeah. like no one wanted to go back to analog. <laughs> I mean, that, that
5: was the abyss, right? They were compositing <laughs> yeah, the, abyss. the, uh, the water optically, yeah. but he did that one shot in proto Photoshop and, uh, saw the writing was on the wall.
0: He had, to, he had to write, I think he said he had to do each half of the frame at a time because it wasn't right. enough ram to hold the, hold the frame. So anyway, that, it amazing. Yeah. 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 The, um, now what was your first job when you got to ILM? Was it a technical director?
5: Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, is a term that I think has kind of fallen a little bit out of favor because they could never put us in the credits as technical directors because of the conflict with the DGA. But um, yeah, I learned the ropes in terms of lighting um, the, the sort of end of the pipeline rigging stuff. So um, what ILM called enveloping. So I got a little bit involved in that. I did some of that work on the job of the hut scene in the special edition of star Wars um uh but really lighting and compositing were the things that I focused on and um so I did lighting on shots in uh Casper and it was kind of like you could do two or two things on a shot but you couldn't do three things on a shot right so if I if I was animating and lighting then I wouldn't be doing the compositing or if I was animate like lighting and compositing then I wouldn't be the animator or whatever it was but uh um, little by little, I carved out a bit of a reputation as being good at a certain kind of technical animation, and um, so that's why I wound up working on the first Mission Impossible film because of the helicopter and the channel scene, which is where I went, met uh, John Knoll, and that that's uh, that's kind of where it all started, I guess. And that's
0: really how did the
5: rebel? I mean, I I worked
0: with you at the rebel unit, but I don't remember yeah. how the rebel Mac unit got created. Like, what yeah. was the beginning
5: conversation there? Well, that's the crazy part, right? So, so yeah, I, I had, I had established myself with a bit of a reputation for doing this kind of technical animation stuff. And so the whole crew coming off Casper was, um, wanted to work on Dragonheart, right? Because it was a chance to do a photorealistic character who was kind of the main character of the, of the film. I really, I had seen a test that John Knoll had done, rendered an electric image on his beige Mac of a helicopter going down a tunnel. I just walked by a room and saw it playing on a monitor. And I said to my manager, what's the helicopter in the tunnel movie? And they're like, "We're great. that's great that you want to work on that because everyone wants to go work on the Dragon movie. <laughs> and of course, John Knoll and I got along great. We had a lot of fun talking about how helicopters fly and the dynamics of it. And I just thought, oh, my God, I am just, you know, I'm I'm right where I want to be. And I'd go up to his office and there he was on his Mac animating X-Wings and TIE Fighters. And like, John, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm single handedly reanimating the entire end of the most seminal visual effects movie of all time. And, and I'm doing it on a computer that you can literally buy at the store across I think the street. It was like 840 AV, I think. was the Yeah. Thing, you know. And um, he had like After Effects version 2, you know. Right. And I was just like, well, this seems fun. Because to a degree, I felt like my experience had been learning to kind of be a race car driver. And a lot of times at ILM, it felt more like being in the pit crew, right? Because everything was so raw and bespoke and technical that you were as oftentimes elbows deep under the hood of the operations of the stuff. And here was John just lighting and animating and using commercially available off-the-shelf software, but bringing that ILM level of quality to it. And that, that level of accessibility has always been inspirational to me. I'm excited by ILM and I wanted to be there, but that sense that I had as a kid of like, I want to do this in my backyard, you know, with a Super 8 camera and and models hanging on strings. I I never really let go of that. And I felt that accessible, you know, quality to what John was doing. So he saw my fascination with that and said, you know, the next movie I got going is a Star Trek movie. Why don't we put why don't we put you on a Mac and have you do this pipeline and do a few spaceship shots? nice. And that was, and, and that was, and, and and then it was just, and then it was just building around that, like you building
0: around the success. Let's get you some more people. Um, and, and you just slowly started to kind of, uh, slowly started to pick up speed until somehow they made a mistake (laughs) and brought me in. So, um, the, uh, uh, I guess the, the question is, is how did the rebel unit, so the, the rebel Mac unit, I mean, went for a while and then you, and then you started the orphanage. How did it, how did working in the rebel unit and that, and that experience affect uh, the creation of the orphanage?
5: Yeah. I mean, in every way it's a direct correlation. It's like you, we have this entrepreneurial spirit and also this interest in filmmaking. So at some point, I think on a lunch, I went to the quarter Madera mall and went into, you know, Uh, the good guys or whatever electronic store and saw the first DV camcorders. And I literally just bought it on the spot and I was broke at the time. You know, I was newly in the employed world. I had, so it was a $4,000 camera and I was like, well, I will be buying that today and I don't know why, you know? Um, and you may remember that ultimately i did figure out how to get a firewire card installed in one of the the macs in our office and um so that sense of like okay cameras are converging with computers the type of visual effects work that ilm is known for we know for a fact can be done with off-the-shelf hardware and software so something is happening here where what was an esoteric you know mystical art that required big iron hardware is now something that you can just engage in just purely based on the spirit of like scrappiness and uh and and we thought we can build a company around this you know so the orphanage was kind of a combination production house post production visual effects studio we did visual effects for movies but we also did digital finishing for that sort of early generation of DV shot, you know, indie movies. Um, And then ultimately uh, when ILM disbanded their commercial production department, we took over some of the team from, from that group and had the ability to do in-house commercial production, which is how I got to kind of make the transition from being a visual effects artist to a director. And, and, what are the challenges of running a vfx firm <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it was it was incredibly difficult especially because of our ridiculous ambitions of taking any tiny shred of profit um and uh turning and pushing it back into like funding our own productions and things like that because we had to build a demo reel so we did you know short films uh, on our own to kind of show off what we could do um, what's the,
0: there was a story that I remember the, um, the, one of the things that got you into Iron Man, right. Was doing a demo shot of, of Iron Man.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It's the sequence is pretty much in the movie. It, and we know the it is. Yeah. That, the, the, the Jericho sequence in the movie, which is, has that Iconic <laughs> shot of him walking away from the explosion. Well, the mo- the best part is the little missile. Who thought of the little missile? That's what I just
0: <laughs> like. It was like, because yeah. it was like you're expecting this big thing, and he goes, and yeah. he just and he just throws this little thing out there. What? what where did that? Where that's, did that come from?
5: That all came from John Rothbart. That that's right. that's that's Rebel Mac alum, John Rothbart. He he conceived that sequence, designed it, storyboarded it, and we did a version of it that got us the work. And at that time, one of the unique sort of value propositions that we had was that we were early in the trend of using a true ray trace renderer we were using the brazil render engine um which meant that awkwardly we were using uh 3d studio max as our you know lighting and and look dev tool but um but it meant that Where everyone else like ILM and others on the show were using RenderMan and RenderMan didn't have ray tracing yet. So Iron Man couldn't reflect himself. So any of the sort of close ups or like his hand glowing up and wanting to see the light really interact with his fingertips and stuff, we would wind up doing those shots. So it was a that was a big moment for us where we were we had. We'd had it a couple of times. We'd had it like on a Harry Potter film, but but, but to to know that our work was being cut up right against ILM's work was a was a yeah. sign that we had we had made it. You know, as far as the orphanage being able to uh, kind of compete at the highest levels. Now, tell us a little bit about the the
0: evolution of Magic Bullet because it didn't start the way it it is now, right?
5: Yeah, yeah. So going back to that early DV camera, um, I'd shoot stuff with it. And the quality technically was there. Um, you know, it was, it was impressive compared to what we'd seen before from from di- from uh, pre digital kind of camera era. Um, but it was thirty frames per second, and even worse, sixty fields per second. Right. So I tinkered around it's, with various because the this is before the Panasonic, right? Panasonic yeah. came out with a oh, yeah. a
0: Progressive 24, but this is the 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 Sony, was it a 2000 or 1000? I, it I was can't. the VX1000,
5: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, and and yeah, so it was there was no 24p that was that concept wasn't even on the radar of camera manufacturers at the time. So I tinkered up a little frame rate conversion method that basically used like you know, temporal difference matting to check for motion in the frame and, you know, kind of use a single field for places where the frame was moving a lot and use two fields blended for places where it wasn't. And we wound up that wound up being kind of an early service that the Orphanage provided for these films is that we can convert your your frame your footage to 24 P and do digital color correction. So along the way I had developed this little recipe for ways to basically kind of shave some of the digital edge off of this early, um, this early f- digital camcorder footage. And that included things like adding little bits of simulation of things like diffusion or removing, you know, artifacts. And then obviously this deinterlacing stuff. So that, so magic bullet kind of got its name, because of the "quote unquote" magic property of being able to kind of turn video into film, um, so really initially it was a frame rate conversion tool. Um, but then, little by little, turns uh, out once you convert it to film, you got to make it look like film. <laughs> you got to make it look like film, and that that actually turned out to be the 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 part of the the, the thing that really had legs and continues to be of of value to to artists today. And you're
0: doing all this visual effects. How did you end up getting into s- building screenwriting software? <laughs> it's like, it's like, we're going to do all these visual effects and then we're going to write. So
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, to me, it was always a piece of the whole, right? It was always, I was always like a filmmaker who did visual effects. And so, um, again, it comes down to accessibility. So... Uh, uh, the other uh, sort of orphanage co-founder Scott Stewart and I were like into writing and we would go to film festivals together. And at some point we saved up our shekels and, and together bought one copy of final draft for like $300 in 1990, whatever money. And, um and, and it was like this precious, you know, uh, commodity that we had. and, you know, here it is writing to a proprietary file format. You know, it's, if you stop paying for the software, you stop having access to the words you've written. It just didn't feel right to me. Um, And it was many, many years later that after I had had a blog, I kind of got into the um, culture of like web writing, which centers around a format called Markdown, which is just like a really, really lightweight markup, language that is like HTML stripped down to its very, very bare essentials, where to italicize a word, you just put asterisks on either side of of it. And I realized that I loved writing that way. And I thought screenplays are so simple, you know, Courier, 12 point, there's a tiny handful of types of elements, you know, scene headings, action, character dialogue, parentheticals, uh and transitions and all of this could be encoded in text with almost no markup whatsoever and and it just made me feel like there was this opportunity to make a plain text screenplay format that would do for screenwriting what markdown had done for web writing so it really started with me kind of experimenting in public with this idea and then i got contacted by legendary screenwriter john august saying hey i'm doing the same thing let's team up and so we teamed up and we came up with fountain which is the text-based screenplay format and then each of us independently developed applications to work with it so he created one called highland and and i teamed up with a buddy of mine named clinton torres to create one called slugline So it's just, you know, I can't touch any aspect of filmmaking without wanting to tinker and make tools to try to make the process better, you know, Um, which is, you know, kind of the uh, the spoiler alert for the end of the stew filmmaking saga is that is that little by little that sort of impulse to make the tools really took over. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I've been using I
0: think i I think you got me on the beta, and I've been using Slugline ever since. That's so great. That's, that's what Love I it use, um, for what I'm doing. Um, now, when you look forward, uh, what do you see in the future? Like when, when you think from all the stuff you've done over the last thirty years or more, uh, when you look at that trajectory and you look at all the things, whether it's AI and all the other things that are going on right now, what do you, what are you tracking?
5: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I'm pretty bad at predicting the future. Um, but what I've always been good at is following my fascinations and they tend to things that I'm interested in now tend to become opportunities for commoditization later, right? So, um, I developed Magic Bullet on my own as kind of a special recipe to make my DV footage look better than everybody else's, but then ultimately that could become productized, you know. And so that spirit of wanting to share the tools with others, you know, has, has led me to the career path I'm on now. Um. So when I look at the stuff that's going on with AI right now, part of it is like, amazing, right? Because we are getting things like, uh, you know, an assistant who will happily rotoscope a thousand frames of footage for you instantaneously, you know, um, with you just being able to give it very lightweight instructions. Um, But as far as using AI tools to replace the kinds of things that I enjoy doing, I'm not super inspired by that. um, Because uh, to me, the, the action is the juice, right? Like I like, you know, touching the stuff and grabbing it and moving around. And so if I can just type spaceship battle and one pops out the other end to me, that the value of what comes out of it is worth exactly the amount of effort I put into it, you know? And that's not true for the audience. So that's just me as like a creative person. Like I, I,
0: and I think that for me right now, I love mid-journey, but I love doing it as a concept. I would never... I don't think of it as a thing that I'm going to use, like, that footage. Yeah. Um, I think of it as, like, I got this idea. Like, I had this idea of... um this movie idea that people would go to another planet and there's dinosaurs and they, it's like a, safari, a hunting safari, except it's dinosaurs. But then of course the dinosaurs get out of control. And, and so I had this guy running yes, with a do. rifle and a di- dinosaur in a desert and I got this great image. You know, yeah. like, and I was just like, and so, and, and you know how hard it is to sell a concept and being able to show an image of... You know, the movie's not going to be that, you know, he had like 18 fingers and, you know, that kind of early, early, mid journey. Yeah. um, But, but it's, but for someone to visualize what it, what it takes, I think it's really powerful.
5: Yeah. But, and you're in a position where an image like that is useful to you, right? So you being able to vividly describe something and then come up with an image, you're actually in a position where that image is currency to you, right? Right. Very few people are actually in that position, right? Right. Um, so like mid journey is not nearly as popular as chat GBT because everyone can make use of, Hey, help me write. You know, my wife uses it to write captions on Instagram posts or thank you cards. You know, she gets like horribly sort of writer's block about writing a thoughtful thank you card, but chat GBT un- unblocks her, you know, and even if she doesn't use what it wrote, it it just gets her out of that cycle. You know? I have a friend. I have a friend who, who all the all the stuff that
0: they email back to people they don't like, like bad comments and angry emails and everything else. They said that that ChatGPT is so much nicer about it. Yeah. Than,
5: than they would be. <laughs> you know, and and
0: and rather than investing time in someone who's giving them a hard time about things, they just they just say take this and give me a, a respectful response that says this this and this, and then they, they get it and they cut and paste it and put it in and say, okay, you're done.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not trying to be like old man yells at cloud about AI stuff, but I do think that right. it's interesting how the generative AI is useful to people who are already in the business of making images and who right. know what to do with them once they get them. Um, but, uh, you know, you see it with like, the fascination that people have with old school practical visual effects, and how how much of a even sometimes disingenuous marketing angle that is for a lot of movies and things, and and um, I I do think that a certain kind of handcrafted aesthetic will almost become the sort of rebellious you know reaction. To the ability to make these highly slick images, uh, kind of instantaneously, like they will come to express a sort of valueless um, yeah. quality because they were so effortless to create. You know? Well, you know the funny thing I always think of when people say they didn't do any visual effects for a big film,
0: I, I feel like what they what they're really saying is we worked hard enough at it so that you wouldn't notice. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's,
5: you know, like but but that but that's just, that's something you know because a lot and of that times some we do some filmmakers are privileged enough to be protected from the process for <laughs> the, the budget yeah, yeah exactly like i yeah. can spend any
0: mu- amount of money to make it look real and that's yeah. a whole different different puzzle now there's a rumor that you might have something to show us you might have a little something you could demo
5: yeah yeah sure i i mean i i just you know um one of the things that i've been doing lately uh is just sort of getting back into this kind of hands-on visual effects uh, process, right? Just kind of diving back in. um, And, uh, you know, we, um, you know, Magic Bullet led to me joining a company called Red Giant uh, where Magic Bullet was a product. Um, That's also where John Knoll sold his Mighty uh, Lens Flare uh, plugin and then red giant uh, merged with maxon makers of cinema 4D uh, a few years ago and so that has given me renewed interest in relearning 3D animation and and the kind of the modern rendering gpu rendering with redshift and things like that so um i've got uh a little project that i i what what i've been doing is i've been doing these like almost like visual effects test shots and you kind of know what this is like, Alex, you kind of concoct a little project as like a proof of concept for a a bunch Mm -hmm. of stuff. So this was, I've always loved this type of shot where, um, you know, this kind of Michael Bay, like, you know, hardware in the sunset kind of shot. And so um, this is something that had been kind of on my radar for a while. And at Red Giant, I designed a tool called Super Comp that basically took all of the dirty tricks of compositing that I had learned over the years at ILM and 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 uh, and helped develop in the Rebel Mac unit, and bottled it down into a really easy to use layer based approach that was be really familiar to an After Effects user. So when you see things like the um, the light wrap and the grain on this, and even the heat distortion and all that, all of that is being handled. Uh, by SuperComp using render passes that either came out of Cinema 4D and Redshift, or in the case of like the heat ripples coming out from the engines, that's generated by Trapcode Particular, which is our um, particle plugin that works inside of After Effects. So this is a big collaboration between compositing and um, and 3D. It, has it has it been really freeing for you? Because you're kind of getting
0: back. At, I mean, we obviously did tons of 3D at, at the Rebel Unit, and I think yeah. that you know it's um, has it been with this merger? It really gives you a lot more access and time, right, to spend in it.
5: It gives me a prof- a professional obligation to yeah. do to play to play around in 3D. You know, right. which I had which I had been um, I'd been really focused on the 2D side of things. Had really been living in After Effects and, um, you know, thinking about things like color management and color correction and kind of the evolving state of, um, you know, compositing and, and, and color tools. And, um, so yeah, having an excuse to just kind of get back into, um, to 3d, it's been a a new way to explore this idea of accessibility, right? So this was a free or cheap download, this model, uh, from Sketchfab, right? It's like a game engine resolution model. Right. Um, but uh, so part of the challenge is kind of, can I dress it up and kind of hide its imperfections? So, you know, I, I crack it open and I put a little um, texture map inside the cockpit and then I've actually got two little pilots in there, which is, you know, the technique that I used on my short film uh, the last birthday card, which, which, but I ripped it off from what John figured out how to do for mission impossible. Right. Which is like texture mapping a little guy on a card. So that's actually, uh, uh, let's see, that's, um, shot here in my studio. Right. So there's my little very high tech. Yeah. And, but you know, this is like, uh, this is my idea of a good time. You know, it's like, I, I get, get to the point of, uh, where I've, (laughs) I've done all I can do in 3d and I set up a, a green screen and, make a little texture map of myself and put it in there and and uh, and then you've got uh, speaking of lens flares um, so over the years, been thinking a lot about those lens flares. And it's, it's uh, funny. I just, I just wanted to say one story is the first day that I got to ILM. <laughs> oh, that's so right. I, yeah. I was, so I was, uh,
0: I had come down, I didn't know what to expect. I'd come out of the ranch. I had been working at the ranch for a year and a half and the ranch is fast and furious. You're doing 25 shots a week. You're, you know, they're all kind of slightly less than cartoon version of, of what you're doing, but it's really exciting. I learned, I didn't know, what, I didn't know what line of direction was when I got to the ranch. So by the time I got finished with the ranch, I kind of understood film concepts and, yeah. and how to work a lot of hours. And um, and then I got down there, and I am so used to this fast churn and john noel and and Stu are sitting there, I think you spent a couple hours while I was sitting there looking at lens flares, and it yeah. was just, it was a it, you were just taking a you were just running a light past a um a lens, and, and all I could hear over there was, oh look at that, yeah, yeah yeah it was did you see you see what it did there yeah. <laughs> And I was like, and and all I could think of is I am going to love this job. (laughs) This is just so much fun.
5: Anyway. And you were seeing, you were seeing the happiest person that you've ever seen in your life in that moment. Right. There, there was another moment like that early in the sort of special edition work where um, they, I don't know how I got called into this room. I didn't really belong there, but a bunch of the old, guard compositors at ilm had pulled out an old film print of star wars and they were looking at it with a loop and they were right. looking at the laser blasts and they were just like these things don't look anything like what our brains remember them as looking like and right. we were all looking at it going these things are ridiculous you know sometimes they have a dark core and a bright glow sometimes they have a bright core and a dark glow like they were just all over the map but that we have the sense of what they were meant to look like and everyone was kind of looking around going we're not gonna make them look like this, right? We're gonna make them look like what we remember they should look like. Right? And so those little moments of like where the no. history of ILM touched the the modern, you know, kind of uh or emerging, you know, like digital thing. Yeah, John John was John was, you know, able to do that, right? He could go on the stage and 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 talk Talked the team into he's, shooting all these lens flare references for us just so we could make that one shot you know that one right. flyby shot you know really really sing you know well and he's such a great bridge because he you know he
0: he knew all the the analog stuff but he yeah. was also core to the the future and yeah. and just bridge bridge those two two worlds um we've got a lot of questions stacking up i'm gonna uh mitch do you have a question before we jump into the the yeah, I just question.
1: wanted to make a comment question. Uh, you can learn a lot about somebody uh, by hearing the stories that you guys are telling, but also looking at this After Effects uh, uh, online, I'm looking at your plug-in selections, um, <laughs> how you built. I mean, I'm seeing a lot into what's going on. I mean, as a fellow After Effects user, and that's the only thing I have in common with you uh, since it was uh, uh, was it COSA, um, my number one most favorite, and the place I always look for in the effects and presets, is to see if they have Magic Bullet in there. Oh, that's and awesome! It is my favorite. It's my number one favorite plugin.
5: Oh, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely my baby. Uh, it's one of one of the, my favorite things I've ever made. Uh, pure
1: pure genius, and how you designed it. And the only thing I can compare it to in terms of groundbreaking interface and the way it works is, remember Bryce back in the day? It was just so different. (laughs) The the shock of
5: Bryce was there when I first opened Magic Bullet. That's great. I I, I appreciate that. I mean, Bryce captured that sense of, like, I think it's that accessibility, but I also really had this sense of, like, you shouldn't have to be a technical wizard to use this stuff. You know, if right. you know, if you can intuitively understand, if I put an orange filter in front of the lens, this will happen, or if I um, smudge the lens with nose grease, you know, something's going to happen. Uh, a particular look is going to happen. You can intuit that, and I wanted to bring that sense of play and experimentation, and kind of, I, I have a feeling that I know what's going to happen, but let's just try it and see. I've always wanted to bring that spirit to the digital post-production tools. And even
0: for high-end, I mean, I think that, you know, we always say that, you know, you don't, you never finish a visual effect shock. You just run out of time, you know, like, and, 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 and that, what I really learned at ILN, the most important thing was that everything's about iteration. Like how many times your eye in iteration, so your eye to see what's good and not good. And how many times are you going to get to get there? How many times are you going to, cycles are you going to get before you just have to give up to get to whatever you can see? And those were the two things that, and these tools like Magic Bullet, which I use a lot as well, are the things that shorten that time, you know, so that you have more yeah. iterations, you have more cycles, <clears throat> every cycle goes further and you just get closer
5: to what you can, that, that impossible, <laughs> infinite place that you're trying isn't to not Isn't it amazing what an education we had in that, you know, sitting in dailies with people like Dennis Murin and watching how they would iterate on a shot and watching what they would and wouldn't focus on or care about or think, you know, needed a revision or whatever. I,
0: It's, it was every morning, like every morning we'd go in and it was the the highlight of my day was sitting in that, in there and just listening to the critiques, you know, it was, it was, it was, and, and the fact that, you know, when we, I asked John, John one time how the Gaussian blur works and he wrote the equation, like like he (laughs) he said, well, this is how I wrote it, you know, and, and you had people like that all over the, all over ILM where like, you've talked to about, about morphine and you talked to the person who you know, wrote the white paper on it before they did it.
5: You know, it's, it's incredible. At one point, John took pity on me and like showed me how to use the levels tool in Photoshop. (laughs) And he he described it so perfectly and succinctly. And I'm like, you wrote this. And he's like, yeah, I'm like. (laughs) And now I know how to use it really well. The funniest one was when, well, i am not going to mention who it was—but
0: um, but someone said, "Oh, I can't make this." It was an afternoon shot of Darth Maul, and he's like, "I can't make this into an evening shot or a night shot." There's no way you can make that conversion. And John said, "Oh yeah, you can." And he just opened up Levels and he went. And, yeah. and it was immediately an, an an evening or night shot, and I remember him just going, "Save." <laughs> I have no idea what John just did there, but I'm gonna not. I don't want to yeah. go back. Um, <laughs> Save. Well, let's let's go to the let's go to the first question.
1: I got some questions here. This is from Douglas Carmichael. Would you ever think of a sequel to the DV Rebels Guide remade for the modern iPhone social media
5: era? Mm, oh, what a terrific question! I appreciate that so much. Like. um... I my answer to that, I hope is not unsatisfying, which is that I wrote that book at a time where, believe it or not, books were still a thing. Right. And so um, I I definitely had a sense of like I wanted a physical artifact uh, out of it. But, you know, the fun thing about that book, right, is that it has those rounded corners and it has that sort of it's printed to look like it's beat up on the edges and whatever. I really wanted it to feel like you could jam it into your camera bag and take it with you in the same way that you would take like a field guide to birds on a hike or something. Um, in the modern era of cell phones and whatever, we have constant kind of access to this ever evolving you know, pool of information tutorials. And so I think I'm living the, the re-edition of, of the DV Rebels Guide every day when I post on social media. Um, it's something I am still trying to figure out, um, (laughs) with the kind of tumultuous state of social media platforms right now, I'm still trying to figure out my ideal way of doing that. But I I have that impulse to want to share. When I was in uh, middle school, my science teacher said, if you can't explain it, you don't understand it. And that really stuck with me. And it's why I love sharing my techniques because it forces me to understand them really well. So I hope I'm doing that every day with my presence on, you know, formerly Twitter or hopefully maybe now Threads or whatever is coming next, I don't know, but uh please hold me accountable to that. I want to be sharing more and more stuff and uh I I I it's not maybe going to be as conveniently carry aroundable in your bag as as a as a book, but um, it's on my mind every day to, to figure out the best ways to to share stuff with everybody.
1: Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are some of your favorite video effect shots from movies or TV shows that you've worked on and why? Well,
5: mm. oh, good one. Um, there's a shot in Galaxy Quest. Which was one of, which was I think, kind of my last Rebel Mac unit uh, show at ILM. Um, one of the great things that Alex will remember about the Rebel Mac unit is that we were in the same building as the uh, model shop, and we viewed our role as making digital spaceships. They had to cut into shots, you know, in the spe- in the uh, in episode one, they had to cut, you know, right up against. Model shop work, and Star Wars spaceships look like what they look like, which is models shot on stages in front of blue screens, you know. And so we lit them and animated them that way. We wanted to be a part of that tradition. And so for Galaxy Quest, they built the the Protector, uh, the the uh, the sort of Enterprise-inspired spaceship as a as a practical model. But there were a couple shots where it needed to be digital going into, you know, their version of warp um, and then an extreme close up where they're coming out of the dry dock and they're grinding the edge of it against the the dry dock. And so here we are suddenly challenged with doing a digital version of this practical ship that is going to be that is going to be pushed into like where you're going to be looking at filling the screen with what would have been six inches of the model you know and so we threw the book at this thing man uh coley Wirtz modeled it andrew hardaway lit and uh and rendered it and we just did every technique that we could do we just threw the book at this thing and we put it into dailies on film and the model shop crew were all there the visual effects supervisor bill george was there and everyone just was like you guys have done it. You have made a digital spaceship that cuts up against ILM's best practical effects work. This is a hand-in-hand kumbaya collaboration between the old and the new, and it was just like the high five that like marked something really important for my career. Yeah, I think that was really interesting. I think that was that was. We also shared the, the building with uh, rebel
0: uh, with the mat um, the mat department and. You see Whiskey and, 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 uh, you know, and, yeah, Paul, and, Houston. and Paul Houston and, yeah. and I'm going to try to get Paul on. <laughs> it's so oh, he's the best. He's so good. And, and, uh, and especially watching Paul take models, like yeah. he's been there since day one, take models, digitize them with a, with a micro scribe, and then <laughs> yep. take pictures of them in the sun and then camera map them back on. I think that there was something about like learning that you use all of these things. You don't yeah. have to make it all digital. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Next question from Chris Fritchie in Tomball, Texas is today's version of cinema 4d capable of accomplishing the same shots, animations and lighting that you've done in the past with the older
5: technologies. Nice FJ 40, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. By the way, I, that's a, one of my hobbies on top of hobbies is designing my own, like my own creation Lego sets. So I actually, I designed that and built it. Um, Uh, Alex will remember that I used to drive one of those around. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah, absolutely. Cinema 4D is amazing, and it's such a privilege to be a part of its amazing history. Alex might remember that they brought an early version of Cinema 4D to show us at the Rebel Mac unit, and we looked at it. And it was incredible in so many ways. And we wanted to use it so bad, but there were like three things it didn't do. So we said, hey, there's three things it doesn't do. And they came back six months later and says, it does those three things now. (laughs) And that sort of (laughs) spirit of like scrappy, like, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. Cinema 4D is absolutely capable of doing every level of – uh, of visual effects animation, there's built-in simulation tools, uh, you know, uh, pyro and fluid dynamics. Uh, it's 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 a it's a tool that I personally am in that sort of way of like that I think a lot of Photoshop artists feel that they're perpetually learning the tool that they're supposed to be an expert at, you know, right? Um, I learned something new about Cinema 40 every day in in my little airplane coming in for a landing shot, I wanted to animate the little flaps opening up and, and, uh, there's just this like little quality to the way these little, um, these things are just kind of getting a little bit buffeted by the wind. And I used to do that all by hand, but there's just a tag that you can add to an animation channel that just makes it vibrate, you know, just a little, (laughs) just, just (laughs) add it, just do it, just add the thing, make it vibrate. It was so easy to do. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. The the short answer is yes. The long answer is absolutely yes. Yeah, I think I think cinema. That's why I've been using it since I, you know,
0: since after the electric image days, and uh, and it just feels like you know I I know that I'm limited in what I can get done in cinema. I know it's yeah. not cinema that's limited in that, totally. in that area. Yeah. Uh, next question.
1: Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asks: What are some of the most significant changes
5: you've seen in the video effects industry over mm. the years? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, To me, it's um, a handful of years ago at Seagraph, there was a demonstration. um, There's a thing called stupid rat tricks, render man something something. Um, And it was a demonstration of what is now sort of ubiquitous in rendering, which is a thing called progressive refinement. So when Alex and I crusty old gentleman, were uh, were render things, you would move lights, adjust textures, you didn't want to move too much, because you were about to commit to a waiting process. And sometimes you would draw a little box. Like when I was developing the look of the helicopter for the Mission Impossible uh, uh, sequence, the channel sequence, I would draw a little box around the edge of the helicopter and just render like 80 by 20 pixels. And that would take... A few minutes, right? If I wanted to see the whole helicopter, I had to go to lunch. I, I had to
0: write. I had to write a three. I had to write a three-page paper to go from 128 megs of RAM to 192 because I showed <laughs> like the render, the electric image render bars. I was like, "This bar will
5: go away, and this will save time, <laughs> and you'll be able to. You'll we'll make more money for. We'll make more shots for less. You know that was. But no, but now when you are lighting something what happens is that you see a low quality version of the render in real time as you're adjusting the parameters and it's enough so that it's just like alex was saying earlier about what matters is being able to quickly iterate on creative decisions and so i can move lights around or adjust you know reflections in real time and then if i pause to kind of scratch my beard and watch it for a second more samples get added and it it becomes uh it becomes you know it starts to flesh in and i am just iterating on creative decisions so much quicker these days yeah. so to me that's that still feels like magic it's one of those things like i just try to appreciate it every time i'm in the middle of it because I, i'll get frustrated by something and then i'll just pause and say so i'm much better. I'm, <laughs> I'm, this is all happening in real time.
0: For- I, I You know, I, I always think back, I know we're reminiscing a little bit, but I remember, uh, and we'll probably do too many John Null stories, but, but the, I remember when p- anybody complained about After Effects, John would explain how film compositing was done. Like, yeah, that was like exactly. he, had, he had a little stick that just, <laughs> just goes,
5: <laughs> like, like, let me tell you, like, whatever you're complaining about,
0: it's nothing like what it was before, you know. That was, and, and that
5: was his uphill, uphill in the snow, both ways. Uh, yeah. Talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the,
0: um, uh you know i remember scott pasco um showing us render render uh or global illumination for the first time with electric image at some yeah. graph. and all of our brains were just like melting out like oh my you know and, and so what every time i turn on global i literally every time i turn on global illumination in cinema i just think of that moment like yeah. we, we were like we don't have to light everything explicitly <laughs> you
5: know, like we Ooh. can just we can just turn it on we we faked that in that oh, and yeah. that uh Uh, I I had done this on Twister, and so I knew it would work, but we we did it again on that Galaxy Quest shot. We just, you just make an array of, like, a million lights in a ball, and it takes forever to render, but those shadows are all soft, and and you get all these soft contact shadows and everything, and they were all, you know, shadow-mapped shadows, but, like, you know, so you couldn't afford to do too many of them, but they could be all, they could all have really low-resolution shadow buffers, and so you had, like, an array of, like a geodesic dome of, of lights surrounding the thing, and that was our early kind of uh, fake I mean, fake radiosity. It makes you a little crusty, you know. Like when they said, "Oh, they got ray, ray tracing for
0: uh, in the new Nvidia," you know, like the new ray tracing. I'm like, I rend- I rendered a lot of shiny ships
1: with, yeah. <imagery." laughs> like I was like, I'm not
0: like, yeah, it's okay. Um, uh, next question.
1: And it's Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, PA. weighing in with how much does photography? modeling, drawing, painting, et cetera, influence
5: or inform the necessary vocabulary of a graphics creator? Oh man, what a terrific question. Um, absolutely. That's huge, right? So, um, the, I think the fascination with how images are formed or the way they look, I mean, you, a camera is such an amazing immediate tool for, for doing that, right? And that was the lesson that I learned on Mission Impossible, that it makes me so happy to see it today with things like you know the amazing visual effects work in Dune or in uh, the new Top Gun, where... They shot real planes, you know, or they shot actual helicopters landing and then replace it with an ornithopter or in Top Gun, replacing it with the the period appropriate plane. But the amount of perfect reference that that real photography gives you, there's nothing like it, right? So when I was animating, you know, Han Solo to step over Jabba the Hutt's tail, I had to go out in the parking lot of ILM with a... Uh, an apple box, and watch my reflection in the glass windows of of C building, while I was stepping over something in the way that a handsome man might, and looking at my reflection, try to remember it, run back to my desk, and like adjust three keyframes, render, and wait for the results. You know, and now you know you can shoot reference like that, and just immediately know the answer. Uh, That was a big lesson that I think Alex and I learned over and over and over again. It was like, look at your reference. And so at some point in that Mission Impossible look dev thing, we were all kind of struggling to make this helicopter look right. And at some point I said, you know, John, I know you shot some footage of this helicopter. Can I have that plate? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's get that for you. So Because we weren't going to use any of the real footage of the helicopter, but he had shot a bunch of stuff, uh, hoping it would be useful. And so I just matched it. And the next day in dailies, everyone was all... Shocked, And all I did was just copy reality, you know, so uh, I just learned, you know, to cheat and, and, and cameras are such an accessible way to do that now. And, and if you get a beautiful hobby out of it as well, kind of falling in love with the, the with photography, all, all the better.
0: I literally had a camera in my, uh, my passenger seat when i was working at ilm when i was working on on, on the queen ship that's all i pretty much did yeah and i would take pictures of tanker trucks that was because like yeah. right scale perfect. and i would i almost got into accidents a couple times on the 580 <laughs> you know because i'd be coming in and be taking pictures out of it like like i drive by them real slow and take pictures because the dirt and everything else it was because the problem was i had lots of chrome stuff but i didn't have it at the right scale you yeah, know and, and, yeah. and seeing what that looked like but to your point it was the, to me, it's the easiest way to work is just to go out and look at how nature actually does it and then and then just copy.
1: Um, ne- next question. From Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, I'd often tell students to watch old FX Guide podcasts to learn all about visual effects.
5: What would you send them to watch today? Mm. I would say two things. Um, I would say watch... Uh, the Corridor Digital channel um, because they get some great guests on, including my old mentor at ILM, John Burton. Um, And recently they had Todd Vaziri from ILM, who's a prolific uh, sort of visual effects advocate on social media and great guy. Um, But they just have this kind of rapid fire experimentation process that I really enjoy. They bring a good energy to it. But you know what? The best resource out there is grab your iPad and get the Cineflex app and just find some beautiful old movie that you love and download the digital, you know, restoration of the old Cinefix uh, issue for that movie. So read the Cineflex on RoboCop, right? And learn how Phil Tippett sculpted muzzle flashes for ED-209 out of cotton wrapped around a light bulb or get the Cinefix for um back to the future too and learn how ilm covered a model delorean with vaseline and pricked it with a toothbrush to make it look like raindrops falling on the model and changing that on every frame of a motion control shot it's so inspiring to learn how these practical techniques were done and they all have applicable you know kind of modern digital uh use cases and and there's just it's just such a it's such a rich resource and the beautiful thing is you just pick your favorite movie get the one on star trek 2 and learn how ilm had to learn how to make miniature water to crash the klingon bird of prey underneath a miniature uh golden gate bridge that they built in the back lot it's just an endless beautiful resource such a such a gorgeous thing i know when from from long before ilm
0: i used to I mean, when cinefex showed up that was the end of that weekend like that, that whole weekend yep. was just gonna be me sitting there just just slowly it was the only thing i ever did that was related to reading the slowly but i was just, <laughs> like just kind of just kind of going through it and then scanning every image and looking at all the little bits and
1: pieces it's yeah. an incredible resource i totally agree uh next question Douglas Carmichael's here. Do you think that VFX unionization, as what we've seen with Marvel and Disney workers, will be a growing trend in the future? And why do you think uh, visual effects
5: uh, workers have been driven to unionize? Oh, man. Well, yeah, visual effects is a really tough industry. And when I was at ILM, I was in a union, and I remember working on Twister and... I think I had worked 29 straight days and I was set to come in on a 30th day and my producer said, you can't come in because if you do, we will have to pay you triple time until you get two weeks off. (laughs) And I was like up against my deadline. I really wanted to work, you know, like I didn't get it. I was a kid and I just wanted to do the work, you know, Um, but those overtime hours that I got paid uh, on Twister, paid off my student loans, you know, 15 years ahead of schedule. Um, So uh, I would not claim to know what the right answer is here. But I know from personal experience that studios will drive visual effects companies out of business to save a penny. And so uh, I am here today in the position I am because of visual effects artists who have worked long hours and, you know, uh, busted their backs for our projects and, um, they, they deserve, uh, they deserve fair pay and appreciation, uh, for their artistry and their work. So, um, I am, uh, you know, a non-combatant in this world right now, but, uh, my, my, but I'm, but I stand with the workers for sure. Stu, thanks you so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. This has been such a such a fun, fun thing. It's great to see y'all. really. I've been I've been thinking about this for about a year. <laughs> like, like i want to get to Stu on at a certain time. Well, when we when
0: we got it all kind of figured out. Anyway, it's just really really a pleasure to have you here. So so thanks. Thank you, thank you, everybody. Thanks for the great questions. And thanks to our uh, our panelists who answered all those questions in the first hour and part of the second hour. Um, really, we can't do this without you. Uh, thanks to the uh, incredible producers asking all those questions in both hours. Uh, again, we can't do that without you either. <laughs> this is a real short show without the questions. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then finally, thanks to the incredible team the, the, that comes in every single day and develops the software that we use to run this show, um, figures out who's going to show up and make sure that they're ready to go and comes in and actually runs the switching systems and everything else that we do. You know, it's an incredible thing that we all kind of come together and create our content together. And we really appreciate all of your contribution. Uh, We traveled, hold on, I think we did pretty good. We traveled 40,000 miles today, 65,000 kilometers, answering all those questions, jumping around the world. And that's 322 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Stupid, there's the camera.
5: It's the f nine hundred and fifty that's awesome. I love that background. If I did that in my studio, it would look uh, it's a much messier version of that. It's just short depth <laughs> of field. Like that's the key to the operation. It's just it, I I like to call it. It's like all this old stuff that was worth lots of money
0: when it when it was bought and now it's uh, I call it the wall of depreciation, you
5: know. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a beautiful background. It does. That's it does. for sure. It's a good background. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was awesome, dude. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. All right. right. Thanks, Stu. Appreciate it. Great to have you here. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye bye. That was fun.